Uh, so Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar, uh, the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her, her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up for ever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came, came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Good morning. Really good to see you. What I'm about to tell you is true. It's always true, but this is so strange that you might not think it is true, but it is because I'm telling it to you. My brother-in-law has become an internet star during lockdown. Let me explain. My brother-in-law is a pastor of a church up in Manchester, Grace Church Manchester, and during lockdown number one, one of his members was getting married. Now, they were determined to avoid the limitations of 15 people being at their wedding to such a degree that they brought their wedding forward so that 30 could be there. But there was one person who they longed to be there who couldn't be there. It was a beloved grandma. And so the groom had the great idea of streaming their wedding online on YouTube. You can see it on the screen now. What happened next is very surreal. Now, the groomsman, the bridegroom, works for the BBC. His name was Colin Patterson. And as soon as he posted it online, the story was picked up by his good friends, Ant and Deck. Ant and Deck uh, tweeted their approval to their thousands of followers. And 14,000 people so far have seen and heard the gospel at the wedding of Colin Patterson and his wife. It's absolutely true. Things escalated very quickly, all because of one tweet from Anton Deck. And it was a lovely celebration. Do you know what? Even in lockdown, there's the good news of weddings and celebrations. We all love a wedding celebration. And this passage tells us not about lockdown, but all of history has been heading towards a celebration. It's been heading towards a wedding of God to his church, of Jesus 
to his bride. That's what this passage is all about. And once again, it's a different angle that John sees on the whole of human history and where it's heading. We've seen lots of imagery in the book of Revelation. And this that we touched on last week is so important that I want us to spend some time in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And in the wedding, you've not got two characters. You've got three, one of whom we met last week. And these three characters explain the gospel, the good news of Jesus, comprehensively. Let me explain it to you. You've got these three characters, the prostitute, that is very strange to have at a wedding, but the prostitute who represents the problem, what's wrong with the human race. You've got the lamb who represents the solution and what God has done to put it right. And then you've got the bride who represents what can or who can we be in Jesus and how Jesus has put everything wrong right. So it's the prostitute, it's the lamb, and it's the bride. Let's look at the first one, the prostitute and the problem. Now, once again, we are back in the territory of chapter five and seven of the book of Revelation. We're in the throne room of God as we enter into chapter 19. And there's a vast cacophony of sound from a great multitude. In verse two, it says that they are shouting the praise of God because God has acted. God has condemned the great prostitute who's corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Her smoke, verse three her smoke has gone up forever and ever. It's a, it's a picture of permanent destruction, of permanent defeat. This imagery takes us back to chapter 17 and 18 and, and the picture of Babel and Babylon. But even further than that, even further back than that, back to chapter six and that cry of God's people, the martyrs of the church that have served God faithfully, that have held steadfast to the testimony of Jesus and have lost their life in the history of the world because of standing fast to Jesus. Remember chapter six, verse 10, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood, that great cry from the witnesses to Jesus. And as we remember the prayers of chapter six, we can appreciate more the praise of chapter 19. God has done it, verse two. He's acted in justice to save and to rescue his people. And so there's an overflow of, play, of praise. There's a cacophony and a torrent of praise and of gratitude and of joy from God's rescued people to God the Father. It's there in verse one, verse three, verse four, and verse six. This word hallelujah, this Hebrew word that means praise God. This is the only chapter in the whole of the New Testament where that word can be found. Hallelujah. Praise God for what he has done. Our God reigns. All praise and all glory is due to God because of what he's done. It's not just the church that's praising God. Did you notice in verse four, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, we saw this earlier in the book of Revelation, symbolic of all of creation, of praising God for his justice in laying low everything that has opposed him. But to understand this, we do need to dip back into chapter 17 and chapter 18, where we have this long and detailed in chapter 8, 17, this detailed description in chapter 18, this detailed poetic description of who Babylon is and what happens to Babylon. Babylon the Great is a picture of everything that is evil, corrupt, unjust, that's standing against the loving authority of God. Chapter 19, verse 2, it's 
Everything that stands against the loving, just rule of God is described as adulterous. That's where this imagery of Babel and Babylon comes from. Every person, human heart, every ruler and emperor, every ideology, every political system that stands in arrogance against the loving rule of God will be brought low, says the book of Revelation and the whole Bible. But this imagery is worth spending time thinking about. Why is there chapter 17 and 18 and into chapter 19? Why is there this detailed and descriptive and unusual imagery of sin as adultery? I mean, why is it there? What is God teaching us through the Bible? We were reminded that this great theme is drawn upon from the first 65 books of the Bible before we get to the 66th, the book of Revelation. We hear it continually in the Old Testament, as well as in the New. As God says, I want to relate to my people, but not as a king relates to his subjects, not as a shepherd relates to their sheep. I want to relate to my people in the most intimate way that you can imagine. I want to relate to my people, not as a king to subject, not as a shepherd to sheep. I want to relate to my people as a husband relates to his wife. It's that intimate. Now, no other religion dares to talk about God relating to his people in this way. It's all about service and servitude, all about rulership and ownership. But once you've seen that we were built for this loving, intimate relationship, it tells you something about the nature of sin that no other image can clearly teach you and tell you about. It tells us, I want to spend some time on this, about what sin is and what sin does. That's the imagery that we can learn from this wonderful picture of God and his church as a husband to his bride. What sin is and what sin does. Firstly, what sin is. What we learn here that sin is loving anything more than God. That's the definition of sin. Giving your heart to anything or anyone other than God, the Bible depicts as adultery, as not giving God his dues, as having affection for someone else that you should only give to God. If you make anything more central, more central to your heart's affections, more central to your imagination, more central to your emotions, anything more central in your heart's of hearts in the central processing unit of your affections and your your very nature and being other than God the Bible describes that as sin which is in this passage sin is adultery you know imagine it in this way Tim Keller used this illustration in one of his messages that I read this week imagine a woman who is a wife and she has a husband and she finds her husband his heart's affection has left her Every evening, he's on the phone to another woman. He's spending more and more time with her. He goes on business trips around the world with her. He speaks of his affections and aspirations and hopes and dreams with her every night, hour after hour. Finally, the wife confronts her husband and says, uh, this is not on. This is not right. And the husband says to his wife, I don't understand what the problem is. I mean, I'm legally married to you. I spend money on you. You have access to our joint bank account. I pay the mortgage for you. We are married. You even own my name. We're together. I do my duty. I do the dishes. 
nothing has changed. We're still legally married. What's the problem, says the husband to the wife? What would the wife say? One of the many things she would say is, but I don't have your heart. What kind of marriage is a marriage when I have your name, but I don't have your heart. I don't have your affections. You're in love with another woman. She has, not I have, keys to the kingdom of your heart. Your deepest affections, your deepest longings are no longer shared with me. They're shared with, with her, with someone else. And you might be thinking, yeah, right. What kind of man would say, I don't know what the problem is, and I agree with you. But that illustration is quite pertinent to sometimes how our hearts treat God. You might own the name Christian. You might go to church virtually and when you can physically. You might have been baptized. You might pray. You might give of your resources and time to a Christian organization or charity. But actually, there's something else that has the passion of your heart. There's something else that draws your attention when you have nothing else to think about. I mean, what you do with your solitude is one of the key indicators of who has your heart. When you are free from distraction, where does your mind go? That reveals what's most precious to you. Here's another one. Where does your money effortlessly flow to? Where does it easily flow to? Where your mind goes and where your resources travel to effortlessly. That's two key indicators about who has the keys to the kingdom of your heart, who has your affections. And if you're a Christian, it should be God, but easily something can come in and be a pale imitation of the real thing. So let me ask you, who has your heart? Because that shows us from this imagery of Christ in the church, of marriage, of husband to wife. It shows us about the nature of sin. But then here's another aspect, what sin does. That's what sin is. But here's another one, what sin does really quickly. Look, if God chose just to use the image of king and kingdom, of ruler and subjects, then we would understand sin as just breaking the rules. Sin is treading on the grass. Sin is a transgression of his rule as king to subjects. It's just breaking a rule. But if God has given you his heart, if God wants your love, if he has loved you supremely, if he's set back nothing but given you everything, in that case, sin is, means that you're trampling not on his grass, you're trampling on his affections, you're trampling on his heart. If he's laid down his life for you on the cross of Jesus, if he's held nothing back, then sin is not merely a simple transgression. It's not merely breaking a rule. If sin is adultery, then that means you're breaking his heart. If he's your husband, can you see what sin is and what sin does? When you begin to come into grips with sin as adultery, you see sin as 3D. You begin to see the nature and the reality of sin in a very deep way. If you just see it as transgression, if that's all it is, it can be shallow. But when you see that you've given your heart to him as a Christian, then sin is adulterous. That's the prostitute and the problem that Jesus has dealt with at the cross. And so the praise of heaven, one, three, four and six is poured out in adoration 
to God the Father who's dealt with sin through his son Jesus at the cross and Babylon has been brought low. But that's not all. Let's look at the second thing. If that's the prostitute and the problem, here's the lamb. And here's the lamb and the solution. Have you ever read a book or seen a film like the one on the screen, The Murder on the Orient Express? And you get to the end and you think, yeah, whatever happened to um, whatever happened to what's their name? What happened to what's her name or what's his name? Whatever happened to them? A well-told story never leaves you with any stone unturned or any plot line that's that's unfinished. Look down at verse six. In verse six, our attention moves from the defeated prostitute, the defeated city ideology, ruler and person who is Babel and Babylon to verse six to 10, the victorious bride. And there's a tremendous roar of praise, like the the peals of thunder that you can hear on a stormy night as the church praises God and all of creation praises God. The sorrows of the church are behind it. The glorious future lies ahead of it as the church is united to her bridegroom, Jesus, who has loved her unto death. But in the middle of it, you've got this really strange metaphor, a mixed metaphor of a bridegroom and a bride. And right in the middle, verse seven is a lamb, is an animal. And you think, why is it there? What's Jesus to teach us from this mixed metaphor? It's a wonderful gospel truth. Do you know the only thing that will change you from a prostitute to a bride is the blood of the lamb, is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will take us from a rebellious heart through the process of reconciliation to our maker is the blood of the lamb. That's why there's this mixed imagery, a bride and bridegroom with a lamb right in the middle. We've thought before, as we've journeyed through Revelation, that the Apostle John who's receiving this revelation from Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And we can't understand Revelation 19 unless we go back to his Gospel and to chapter 2 of John's Gospel, where Jesus, once again, was at a wedding. Jesus, in John 2, is at a wedding uh, at Cana in Galilee. It's a passage that's read at many weddings, and you can see this wonderful picture on the screen that's up at a famous art gallery where Jesus is the centerpiece and everyone's looking at his glorious, radiant face. But it's not a very happy occasion, and it should be, because at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, they run out of wine. And Jesus's mum comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. It's a great disgrace. It's a great dishonor. It's a disaster culturally. And Jesus says, mother, woman, it's not my hour. Whenever John uses that phrase from the lips of Jesus, it's not my hour. Jesus means it's not the time of my death. It's not the time of the cross. So let's recap. Jesus' mum, his mother comes and says they've run out of wine. Jesus, do something about it. And Jesus answers in a very perplexing way. It's not my time to die. It's not my time to die yet, says Jesus. And as a casual reader or as a mature Christian, you might be thinking, what is Jesus talking about in John 2? And the only way to make any sense of this passage is to think of what it's like for a single person to be at a wedding. Whether you're a man or a woman, 
you must have seen or felt personally how hard it is for single people to be at a wedding. There's a, a faraway look in their eyes. You know what they're thinking. Will there ever be me at the front or will it never be me at the front? Will I ever be married? What will my wedding day look like? Will it ever come? Will it ever be me? That is what Jesus was thinking in John chapter 2. It's not yet my time to be married to my bride. You think, well, how do you know that's what he was thinking? You, you saw a preview on the screen just there because in the Old Testament, in passages like Isaiah 62 and Ezekiel 16 in Jeremiah 2, Jesus reveals himself as the bridegroom of his church, of his people. I'm going to love my people as a spouse loves his bride. I don't want them to be citizens, my people. I don't want them to be sheep in my pasture. I want them to be my bride. I'm going to win them for myself. I'm, I'm going to give my heart to them. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to reconcile them. Which is why in Matthew 9 in the New Testament, Jesus says to this confrontational question, talk about passive aggressive. Jesus has asked the question, how come your disciples don't follow the rituals of other people? Why, why don't they fast? When other people do, they should be fasting. They should be sorrowful. They should be respectful. And Jesus says, "Uh, -uh not my people. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? Jesus predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus from lips having lived in the New Testament is teaching us this really important truth for Revelation chapter 19. The only way rebels can be reconciled. The only way prostitutes can become brides, the only way for our hearts to be recaptured by the love of our true spouse, the only way for the punishment for our adulteries to be wiped out, the only way we will ever lie in the arms of our true husband is if he steps into history and suffers in the midst of time so that we can experience joy at the end of time. The only way that we will know that joy in the future is if Jesus Christ, the divine husband, steps into human history and drinks the cup of God's wrath that we thought about a few weeks ago, right in the middle of time. Jesus is thinking about that. That's why the lamb is right in the middle of this wedding picture. That's what he did. That's what he achieves for us in verse seven. Of Revelation chapter 19. That's the way he deals with the problems of human history. And that means we can look forward to the bride and the result. Finally, the bride and the result. All of creation, all of history, the first 65 books of the Bible have been preparing us and whetting our appetite for this great wedding. Jesus to his bride. He loves her so much. He's held nothing back. He's given her everything. He's prepared her in the most unique way. She's dressed in his righteousness. Four quick things to think about. Jesus, not as our king in this instance, but Jesus as our loving husband. Jesus as the bridegroom for his people, the church. What does it mean to live in marital union to Jesus, rich imagery four quick things here we go first of all marriage to jesus is a legal thing 
is a legal thing. Look, in every culture and every place, if you're poor and you marry someone who's rich, you've hit the jackpot. You've never earned any of their money, but legally what is theirs becomes yours. And it's exactly the same when someone becomes a Christian. When you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done, you're united to him by faith. Everything that is his becomes yours. All that is yours is now his by faith. You're a sin. He's right. But you are legally joined to him. You're united to Christ, which means verse 8, revelating, you're clothed in his righteousness. He no longer sees you in your filthy rags of your your sinful days or the father to the beauty of his son no longer, no longer a prostitute you are a reconciled forgiven person your past record is no more your future is a reality all because of jesus legally married to god the father through jesus's on the by faith he sees you as beautiful as his son. remarkable thing here's the second thing there's also comfort and comprehensive rather one of the hard things about becoming married i can remember 20 years ago almost to the day 20 years at christmas is that when someone gets married when i got married it's a wonderful thing but you have to start thinking and organizing what you do where you go how you spend your money, what you're going to do in your future, you're no longer just thinking about yourself. And I got into some trouble. You're thinking about someone else as well. You make decisions together and for the good of one another. You want to make fruitful and faithful decisions. When you, by faith, become married to Jesus, when you're part of that unique people, the people of God who sing his praises, it affects everything in your life. Nothing is off limits. Jesus died for you. There's nothing he cannot ask of you. That you're married to someone and it's just a paper. It's a marriage convenience, but there's no closeness. There's no intimacy. That's not a marriage. That's a sham. That's a paper marriage. And if that's not true on earth, neither is it true of what it means to be a Christian united to jesus christ by faith some of us that is the reality of our christian life say yes to jesus we spend no time with him in the week we're faced we put on a facade but friends jesus can see the when we if it's just to give give me that prayer line he knows if day before you can be desire of you want to be with him or if you pray and you earn night if your relationship it's a comprehensive and if you long for there is a thing Jesus wants more heart and your affections and your emotions does he have them this morning do you need to start over again this afternoon marriage is comprehensive it's legal 
It's intimate. It's also, fourthly, finally, comforting. It's comforting. Ed Clowney preached a sermon on John 2. And in the sermon, Ed Clowney said this, why is Jesus so sorrowful in the wedding banquet that should be so much joy? What is Jesus thinking about? He says this, Jesus sits in the midst of all that joy, sipping the coming sorrow so that you can sit in the midst of the world's sorrow and the coming joy. Do you get that? Jesus sat in earthly joy thinking about the cross. He knew what was coming. He knows all things. Because Jesus went to the cross, that means you and I can sit in the midst of our worst sorrows, our greatest disappointments, and be glad because of the future that he has won for us. Marriage, marriage to Jesus is a great comfort. I mean, earthly marriages can be great. They can be sad. They can be bad. They can be damaging and dangerous. But there is only one spouse who will never let you down, no matter what your earthly relationship status this morning. There's only one marriage feast that will truly give you what your soul needs. And that is only available for you if you answer the invitation. Did you notice the invitation of the gospel in verse 9 of Revelation? The angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited, invited to the supper. The Write it, Jesus says to John. That invitation is the gospel. Let me ask you, are you going to the feast? Will you be there? The invitation has gone out. Have you RSVP'd? Have you responded to Jesus by faith? That's what it means to RSVP. You believe in Jesus. You put your hope, your affection, your soul rest is in Jesus rather than in the small resources that we have in our own person. And you write back saying, thank you. I will be there, Father, because of what Jesus has done at the cross for me. And I hold on to that by faith. Will you be there? You'll only be there because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray.